We're going to be reading from God's Word this morning from the book of Mark. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark 2, verses 13 to 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Good morning. Thank you, my wife. When I get the chance to preach these last few days, uh, or through this summer, we've been working through Mark, the book of Mark, and we're probably about four or five sermons in, I suppose. Uh, I'm not working too fast, am I? We are only in chapter two at the moment. Um, Mark is a tiny book. I've said before, you can read it in under two hours. It's meant to be kind of read all at once. It's meant to be a short short story uh, about Jesus' life and to just kind of highlight the most important things. After the introduction in Mark, um, there are five stories about uh, Jesus' acceptance. He meets the crowds and people love him. He's just embraced by all in those five stories. And then the next five stories, uh, it's, it's opposition. It's people coming up to Jesus with their beef about what he's saying or what he's doing. Uh, And today we're going to look at two of those stories and uh, draw some conclusions from that. As Jesus' fame is increasing, so does his conflict with the religious elite. In our last sermon from Mark, we were introduced to the scribes, and those are the copyists of the Old Testament. They're the keepers of the words of the law. And when a paralyzed man was lowered through the roof in front of Jesus for healing, Jesus forgave his sins before restoring his legs. And this raised alarm bells everywhere because only God can forgive sin. And the scribes were right. They spoke the truth. But they failed to see that Jesus was God. And that's proven both in word and in deed. 
Now today we will meet the Pharisees. They are the keepers of the law. They're the ones who looked around their own religion and saw that something was missing. So they called their people to a renewed obedience to the laws that the scribes protected. But part of what I want to do today is reform our thinking about the Pharisees. They often get a bad rap for being legalists, which they were, but their big sin was actually moralism, and we'll get into that in greater depth a little later on. This morning we will look at uh, these next two stories in Mark that show this mounting hostility and opposition to Jesus. So we'll start in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now there's a strong parallel uh, in this verse to Mark chapter 1, 16 to 20, where Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he calls his first disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John. And again we have Jesus uh, walking by the sea, but this time he calls Levi into his service. Once more, the crowds are relentless. Whether in town or out, Jesus cannot escape him, them, rather. And when I say that, obviously Jesus could escape them. He's Jesus. Uh, when he is about to be beaten and thrown over the precipice, he walks away, Scripture says in John 8. Um, he has the power to just move out of these situations. But the point is, Jesus doesn't escape the crowds. They are pushing in on him. So even his return to the sea grants him no reprieve. I should say at this point that the sea here is just like the desert that Jesus withdraws to. He leaves civilization, the civilization of city, for the isolation and desolation of the wild. And biblically, the sea is always described as a place of wilderness. Throughout scriptures, the sea is a scary place. It's a place of the unknown and of death. We think of um, Jonah escaping God, and he goes to where God isn't in his mind. The, the abyss, the faraway places of the sea, or how uh, the Israelites cross through the Red Sea, and it is parted, the, the bad sea is parted, and they walk through safely. And then the bad sea returns and kills uh, the Egyptians that were pursuing them. Um, throughout scripture, there, there is good and bad in water, and it's a, it's a fun study to make. Streams are always positive. Streams of living water, right? Fountains of life. Uh, but the sea is always hostile. It is like the wilderness. So he goes there to escape the crowds, but he comes back with another follower. Verse 14, and he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So Jesus meets Levi, and with the very same authority that was highlighted in chapter 1, Jesus says, follow me, and Levi just does. This is the power of the God that we serve. Scripture says that he commands the heavens and the seas and kings and nations. So we should not be surprised at all when he says, Levi, follow me, and Levi follows him. It's exactly what we are supposed to do. I'd like to together read Psalm 33 
uh, verses 6 through 12. I'm going to try it up there. You try it there. By the word of the Lord, read with me, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This is the God that we serve. And with the same sovereign authority, Jesus commands and people obey. And it's a wonderful thing. So what does Jesus do next? And as he reclined at the table of his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is verse 15. For there were many who followed him. So Levi has a banquet. He has a party with everyone he knows. When Jesus meets the other famous taxman, Zacchaeus of Jericho, they just have tea. But Levi hosts a feast. He hosts a feast out of joy and out of gratitude. And this becomes very significant when we look at the next story, which is about fasting. So keep this in mind. Today's two stories are about feasting and about fasting. Jesus finds himself at a party, and here's where the trouble begins. By the time of Christ, tax collectors were numbered among the unclean. Not only were they seen as traitors to the Jewish people, they were also known as thieves, working under the employ of Rome to suppress the people and to extort their income. Taxmen were effectively expatriates living in their own country, self-divorced from their people in the pursuit of wealth. So it's really interesting then to consider that when the tax collectors repent at the words of John the Baptist and they say, what should we do? In Luke 3.13, he, he says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So John the Baptist doesn't say to the tax collectors, quit your job, but he says, do your job well. And that's a very big difference. It's telling that it's not the occupation or the employer even, but the ill-gotten gain that made tax collection unrighteous. So Jesus is eating and drinking with known sinners. And the keepers of the words of the law, that's the scribes, and the doers of the law, that's the Pharisees, arrive on the scene to make it known that this should not be so. He should not be eating with them. Verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, or my Bible says in the scribes and the Pharisees, it's an easy flip of a word, uh, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat and drink, can be added, with tax collectors and sinners? Keen to, keen to correct people publicly and to point themselves as following the higher road, the scribes and the Pharisees make a stink. I find it interesting that they don't go directly to Jesus, uh, but they go to his disciples to point out 
that the clean must not be sullied by fellowship with the unclean. The purity laws of the Old Testament never once mention tax collection in their list of impure activities, do they? In fact, eating with sinners isn't listed as a sin either. And this is where we see one of two true definitions of legalism come up, where the Pharisees make up a new law, a law that extends past the scope of what the Bible says. They're like, here's the law, but just to be safe, let's you know stay this much further back. And then they impose it on others as if it is from God. The other definition of legalism is to obey the law only for the sake of obeying the laws. It's to divorce the law from God, to be devoid of his grace and life. It's just obedience because. So this is why Jesus' most common rebuke of the religious elite was, uh, and this is Mark 7, 6 and on, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Right? It's the extension of what God's law says. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. So that's the legalism of adding to the Bible. I don't do it, if I haven't made that clear. And Jesus' other very common admonition uh, is from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is the legalism of obedience without heart change. Everything outside looks good, but it's still rotten inside, right? So that's the Pharisees' legalism stuff. And we'll still get to their moralism stuff in a bit. Verse 17 says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? He gives us a two-part answer. First, kind of a proverb, and then his mission. Do doctors wait until their patients are well to see them? Maybe with COVID. But no. Doctors go see the sick to help them. Do mechanics wait until the car is fixed to fix it? That's just silly. He asks, how will the sick and sinful receive mercy unless the great physician visits them first? Fundamentally, the real question is, how will the dead become alive unless the Spirit breathes life into them? As sinners, we weren't able to lift a muscle toward God because we were dead. Later on in this message, we'll consider several new doctrines that are circulating in our churches today, but one very common one is that the sinner is just sick or unaware and that he or she only needs to turn toward God to be saved, ignoring verse after verse that explicitly says all are dead in their trespasses. All are dead in their sins. That's Ephesians 2.1. All have sinned, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. My friends, the Bible is very clear that the dead 
cannot wake themselves. But because God is the giver of life, he can, and he does. He chooses those he desires to be made alive by his Spirit. And you can find that in Romans 8, 1 and 10, and 1 Peter 3, 18, Galatians 3, 2, and Ephesians 2, verse 5. And that says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Jesus lives and he moves among the lost, showing love and acceptance without participating or approving of their ways. This is something we have to learn, that we can accept people without approving of what they are doing. Jesus is not made unclean by touching the leper, nor eating with tax collectors or sinners. You and I are to live closely with our neighbors. We are to share table fellowship and our time. We're supposed to share the stuff in our garages and our kitchens. As faithful witnesses, we are to do this that many would be saved. And it's not us who saves. We cannot raise the dead. But, and I just heard Josh say this again this week, in reference to saving our own children, we cannot start the fire of the Lord in their hearts. But we can stack all the wood and kindling around them with love, with good works, with sound doctrine, so that when God's Spirit strikes the spark of spiritual life in their lives, the blaze will catch quickly and fully. That's what we are to do for our kids. That's what we are to do in our neighborhoods. We're to remind each other of the gospel, even in church. Uh, Verses 18 through 20. This is the next story. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and they, then they will fast in that day. Having been told of the feast given by a man who was saved from his sins, we are now speaking of the fast. Jesus Others are fasting. Why don't you and your followers do the same? And his response is to correct them, to tell them their timing is wrong and their assessment of the times is wrong. The arrival of the Messiah is to be a great celebration. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you righteous Pharisees, you should do as those unrighteous tax collectors do. Plead forgiveness and then celebrate your Father's mercy daily and publicly. Tell others of your forgiveness and joy. Should the Christian not be the most joyful and merry and generous person of all? Jesus says it often by talking about the joy of a wedding. Indeed, the metaphor of the Lord as groom and his chosen people as bride is thick throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, Jeremiah 2, 2, Ephesians 5, and Romans 3, Revelation 3, rather. 
And this is because the union and joy of a man and woman wed is unmistakable. I have two stories for you. When Jen and I first met and were dating, we dated for about a week because she was a Saskatchewan girl and she had to go back to Saskatchewan. So we had a week together. And we would sit in restaurants side by side. We weren't sitting across from each other. We just wanted to be close. We had seen each other's eyes and now we just wanted to be next to each other. Our, the, the pastor that wed us noticed that we lost some weight that week. We would just sit next to each other, we'd share a cob salad, and that was it. Nowadays, we fight for like our own second burger. My friend, he, he's a German man, he said, Libra und Sauerstoff. If I said that right, it's, it's love and oxygen. That's what, we were, that's what we were surviving on. A few years later, here's the counterpoint, my wife and I take the trip to Edmonton to have a nice dinner, and we can't decide, and we had, I don't know, strife, maybe getting to Edmonton. But we sit across from each other, and we ate our food in silence. And at the end of the meal, the little waitress comes and she says, oh, she's embarrassed. The little waitress comes and she says, would you like two separate bills? It's true. I said, no, she'll be paying. So those aren't exactly wedding stories. But they do, they do illustrate the joyous nature of love and the obvious void when it's missing. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No. The time of fasting is not now. From the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Why were John's disciples and the Pharisees fasting? Was it in contrition? Were they mourning their sin? Or was it to be seen by men? What made it obvious that they were fasting? What was their purpose? The Old Testament only holds uh, one mandatory fast. Once a year. That's it. One day. It's the Day of Atonement. And all Israel was to fast their sin. Fast in repentance. Every other fast that we see is by volunteer. You do it out of, out of a choice. Yet history tells us by the time of Christ, the Pharisees and others like them were fasting Mondays and Thursdays every week. And they were a, it was a public act of holiness. So it's interesting that when we read about the early church and how they began to establish their patterns, they would fast on alternate days from the Pharisees. They didn't want to be associated with that. And in fact, their purpose was not in piety, but it was so that they would have food to share. These were day wage earners, and they'd fast to give their neighbors some bread. Also, the early church began, as they began taking the words of the apostles to heart, growing in fellowship and building communities, historians note that they began practicing communal fasting for Lent, in remembrance of Christ's crucifixion, and for Advent, in preparation of Christ's 
second coming. But during these extended fasts, they would always, they would always eat on Sundays. Why? Because how could one possibly fast the Lord's Supper? How could you fast the Lord's Supper and deny the communion of the saints? They saw beyond the, the strictness of the law, and they saw the heart of why they would do, do these things. So this passage, what we're reading today, is about fasting and feasting. And it's explained by Jesus in the next few verses. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for new wineskins. In one sense, Jesus is affirming that there is an appropriate time for everything. Just like Josh's sermon last week, Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for everything under heaven. But just like Ecclesiastes, that's not the point. The point is that it is God who orders the time for all things. He is sovereign in time. He is sovereign in governing. Nothing ever comes to pass outside his will. So here, here it is. This is the great misreading of the old cloth, new cloth, old wine, new wine metaphors. We'll look at uh, the book of Luke, who makes this very clear. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Like this is word for word from Mark, because he copied Mark. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And this is what he adds. This is clarity. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. Jesus is the old wine. He is the old wine, and the old wine is good. It is the Pharisees' teaching that is the new wine. This is what we've flipped around. How did we get this wrong? I think the crux is that we, we tend to think of the Pharisees as old school. The stodgy old guard, furrowed brow, geriatric grumps, unwilling to bend or to move for fear of becoming impure or because of their pride of being superior. This is how the movies always portray them, you know, like arms crossed or fingers wagging. We see them as old, stuck in their ways, clinging to traditions. Here's what we need to rethink what we know of the Pharisees. Jesus calls them new wine because they were the upstarts. I really want you to understand this. The Pharisees were a renewal movement. They saw the corruption and decline of their religion and decided to do better. The Pharisees were the happening crowd. They were the hipsters in their vintage clothes. They came to take a fresh, they came with a fresh take rather on their faith in order to make things right. And it doesn't take long before you you know, make a fresh take uh, and then make it something that's immovable and then it becomes stuck. And I think that's why we get this image. But 
the Pharisees came and they wanted to change things to make it right, and it was catchy. Friends, if there was a Pharisee Christian in our midst today, we would think that they were on fire for Jesus. Do you understand that about the Pharisees of the New Testament? They were the ones on fire for God and doing stuff. We'd figure that they had it all together and we'd point them out to our kids and say, that's who you ought to look like because they are living it. They look good from all angles. We'd want what they got because outwardly it looks so good. But this is the problem. It was only skin deep. And Jesus continually told them that just obeying the law and making up stricter laws without heart change is useless. This is moralism. This is what this is all pointing to today. And it's the same for every other man-made religion that's out there. Moralism answers the question, what should I do to save myself? How can I improve my life? And the Pharisees saw the law and they said, we can do that, instead of saying there is no way that we can do that without God. They got it wrong. The law is to point us to God because we cannot follow the law. We can't do it. Not one little bit. And it is to make us fall on our knees and say, Lord, help me. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This is interesting, right? A Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And on and on and on, right? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went out of his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Fast or feast? Are you fasting because of your great forgiveness? Or are you feast? Sorry, are you, did I say that wrong? Are you feasting because of your great forgiveness? Or are you fasting to save your own self? Sadly, what the modern church is doing is like this. They are trusting the new wine. They are, they are taking, they are, sorry, they're getting a new take on things. Much of Christianity today is falling apart because of secular influence. People are trusting their own moral living. So many sermons are about pulling up your bootstraps, doing it right, try harder. The Pharisees of today say, well, I don't do any of the big sins. When we look around, sin should make us uh, see the sin in our own hearts. Repent for that. Fast for that. Many Christians today are being swept along in our culture's new religion. Some of the parts of it are extreme environmentalism. If we save the planet, we'll save ourselves. 
gender alternatives. Everyone is right about everything they think. And woke sociology. Rules are oppressive. Society is oppressive. Truth is oppressive. Religion is about oppression. And all of this because the new wine looks better. It appeals to our sinful hearts. So, being true to oneself trumps biblical authority. Where much of biblical, modern biblical thinking fails is not in denying what the Bible says, but in coming up with reasons why we shouldn't follow it. There's so much of that. Yeah, the Bible says that, but we don't need to follow that now because we, we know better. We see the trajectory of where the Bible was going. The Bible is complete. We, we don't know more than the Bible. There's no trajectory, uh, trajectory of these things. And this is the new wine. But new wine will tear the fabric. At the same time, as we tend to think of the Pharisees as the old wine, we tend to confuse Jesus as the new. Mark sets him up as the new guy in town. He brings a new teaching. And because his blood is shed for sin, uh, it's known as the new covenant. But we've mistakenly called him the new wine. He is the old wine. Luke 5.39 says, And no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. Jesus is the old wine. He comes as fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is the unifying story of the whole Bible. He is God incarnate, God of the Old Testament. He is the ancient of days. That's old. Like all man-made religions, the Pharisees' appeal was to a doable morality. Follow God by sheer will and brute strength. The focus was and is still on doing, but Christ calls you and I toward being. Inward stuff. Stuff you can't fake. We are to be like Christ. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy as I am holy. And these aren't just New Testament words. They are very old. Peter's repeating Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When we view our faith as a to-do list or a do-not-do list, we are Pharisees. We're elevating doing good, morality, over heart change. But when we collapse, cry out for help, because we know that we cannot obey even one of God's laws on our own, we are Christians. God calls people to be dependent upon him. The sick need a doctor. We cannot be well apart from Jesus. When Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, who do you think he thought was righteous? There's no one. We are dead without him. 
And we must be desperate for him. That's what righteousness is. That is old wine. That is good wine. To depend upon him, to need him, is the gift of faith granted to us in Christ's cleansing blood. And it is the feast that we share. It is the feast we will share in a few moments with communion. Let's pray. Oh, I'll have I'll have the servers come up and uh, the worship team as well. Lord, thank you for Scripture that is very clear. It's not clear because we are clever that we see what others don't. It is clear because your Spirit teaches us. Your Spirit reveals to us the meanings. Lord, I pray today that we would leave this place with joy, that we would receive this feast with joy, and that when we fast, it is for a brief time of contrition, It would be for repentance. Knowing that we cannot make any of this right on our own. But that through Jesus' blood, our sins are washed away. And we are made right. Lord, we pray today that you would make us holy. That is an impossible pursuit. Made possible through Christ. Amen.